Future Self Podcast, Episode 15. It's great to have dreams. It's fantastic to have dreams. But dreams don't pay the bills. And dreams don't drive your ass to work. So uh, you have to, every single day, work your dreams in order to get them to be a reality. This is the Future Self Podcast. Here's your host, Robert Ingalls. Hello, Future Self listeners, and welcome to episode 15 of the Future Self Podcast, where every episode is intended to provide you with actionable advice that you can implement in your life today to get you from where you are to where you want to be. And with that goal in mind, I will be compiling knowledge, insight, and inspiration from some of the most accomplished minds and serving it up every Friday. Now, listeners, if you are looking to be inspired to act, to stop wasting time and take control of your future, then there is no better example to follow than today's guest. Today's guest grew up in Aleppo, Syria, and at 16 years old, after waking up to bullet holes in his bed frame, his father left behind everything the family had and fled from Syria for the United States, where he had to start from scratch. With a work ethic his father instilled in him at a very young age, he embraced the new challenge of life in the United States. And instead of easing his way into the culture, today's guest chose the baptism by fire route. With no more than a few English phrases in his vocabulary, he enrolled in the public high school, learning his course materials while simultaneously trying to learn the language that they were being taught in. After graduation, he went on to UNC Charlotte, worked for a defense contractor, and when the market took a nosedive in 1999, he was forced to change directions. Then he moved to Boston, spent a few years working as a financial advisor while also obtaining his MBA degree from Boston University. Always wanting to be the best at whatever he does, from pushing a broom to running a commercial investment fund, today's guest is a testament to the value of hard work. It is my pleasure to welcome a man that is always looking for the next angle, never content with yesterday's success, a man that has so very clearly played the game with the end in mind, who understood his future self, where he wanted to be, and made the tough decisions every day to get there. I am thrilled to have Mr. John Azar on the podcast today. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you came out today. Um, so we heard a little bit about your backstory. Why don't you fill in some of the gaps there and tell us what you're up to right now? Uh, the gaps, okay. Uh, right now, I, I'll, I'll reverse engineer this thing for you, I guess, a little bit. Right now, I'm, um, I'm co-running a, uh, a private equity platform for um, commercial real estate. We own and operate uh, a bunch of apartment complexes that are across the southeast um, and and class a office space uh, we um, we are also launching a fund uh, this month so uh, my brother it's the, the company is my brothers and I and uh, we are um, essentially a, an operator owner operator uh, of um, commercial office spaces in the greater southeast, anything from the Carolinas down to Florida and Texas. Now, is this office space? Is this residential space as well? This is office and residential. It's mostly residential. It's ninety percent uh, residential, so meaning apartment complexes. Okay, gotcha. Uh, we own we own and operate about five thousand apartment complexes. Okay, and five thousand st- units uh, of apartment complexes, which is about comes out to about thirty apartment complexes. Gotcha. Yeah. And so you're going to be starting a fund as well. Investing in the same type of area. That's that's right. We're inv- still investing in the southeast. We love the southeast, um, uh, and that's where the fund will will be focused as well. Yeah, right on. Was real estate 
like when did you get into that area? Was that kind of always your track, or was that something you kind of found and pursued? No, no, I I, um, I got into um, I got into real estate really by by happenstance. I mean, I, I, by it, it, I think that's how a lot of the big things happen. You just happen to be in the right place at the right time. That's right. That's right. It was uh, I was in it, I was in Morgan Stanley and um, in two thousand two thousand one. Uh, and I was with Morgan Stanley for a few years, and we worked on this massive project, uh, real estate project, uh, which was my first real estate project. Uh, it was a it was a complex finance financing project for this um, eccentric billionaire who was in in Miami who wanted to build the tallest residential tower in Key Biscayne, Miami. Um, it was a one point five billion dollar project at the time, and uh, Morgan Stanley was part of the financing group. Um, we had a few other big name, big players in the industry. Uh, everybody who's anybody in the industry, including architects, anything from Ian Pay architect to Pavarini to um, uh, all big names in the in the engineering and the architecture and in the real estate industry were involved in this project, and uh, including finance. And it did not, at the end of the day, work because it. It was right at the implosion of 2004, 2005 of commercial real estate, especially in Miami. Um, but we walked away from this project uh, with some really great leads into uh, people who wanted to execute projects with us independently outside of Morgan Stanley. Sure. So my partners and I did what any entrepreneur would do, launch a company yeah. on our own and take those projects on the side and, and run with them. Yeah, it jumped into something that turned out to you know kind of fail on itself, but launched a exactly. completely different business for That's you. That's exactly right. It failed. The project itself failed, but it launched a, a completely different business, which was essentially a mixed-use development uh, consulting and finance, structured finance business um, that my partners and I had. Did you kind of know at that moment that that was it? Uh, we, we knew when they came to us and said, um, hey, we'd love to work with you guys. If you're ever on your own, give us a call. Yeah, uh, I and, think I will. And, and we were on our own like within within <laughs> three months after that. <laughs> hey, you go file the paperwork now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. I like that. Well, let's back up a little bit um, earlier in your story. So, born in Aleppo, Syria, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it, Aleppo was was like many other big cities that you may imagine here in America. I mean, if you can imagine growing up in a place like uh, New York or Chicago or um, Boston uh, it, it was it's a very similar experience it was a it's a it's a city of four million people at the time or a little less than that maybe three million at the time uh, with all the hustle and bustle of a city um, very urban environment very ur- very concrete jungle um, my my father was an entrepreneur at heart, so he when he was an entrepreneur. He left a, a cushy government job and opened a, a law office. He was a it was a lawyer by trade, and uh, uh, very nice. Never wanted to chase uh, in the lawyer footsteps. Ne- never wanted to chase. I thought about it for a while. I thought about it for a little bit, but no, I I, I did not want to go to the lawyer tr- lawyer <laughs> route. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I I grew up somewhat in a I want to say I want to say privileged life, but it was it was a it was a nice I upper middle class existence in in uh in Syria um and uh uh yeah and they moved to the states when i was 16 years old my at the time there was a we went through a, 
a, a, a similar civil war to what's going on now. Unfortunately, it was a much, much smaller, much more contained civil war back in the 80s uh, when the Islamic Brotherhood tried to take over the country and um, it kind of spilled into the streets and, and, and Aleppo was affected, Homs was affected, many other cities in, in Syria were affected at the time. Um, and uh, the war was literally to our doorstep. Uh, the, I think the decision that prompted my father to, to decide to move to the United States is when we woke up one morning after a firefight in our neighborhood and there were bullet holes in, in our bedrooms. Wow. And um, including in our bed. Uh, my, my, my bed and my brother's bed had bullet holes in it. So um, I think that very next week, my father got, gathered the family around and said, we're, 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 we're immigrating to the United States. We're not staying here. Yeah, we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. Actually, he didn't say immigrated because at the time, I didn't know we were actually leaving Syria for good when we came to the United States. I thought we were coming to visit. Going on vacation. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So at 16, you move to where? At 16, we moved to Charlotte. To Charlotte. Now, did he Charlotte, pick Charlotte off the map? Why was it Charlotte? Uh, Charlotte, it was because uh, my brother was here. He was going to, um, he was getting his engineering degrees at, at uh, NC State, and then he transferred to UNC Charlotte. Um, and my father wanted to open a business with him, um, fund a company, fund a new startup company, a computer startup company at the time. And um, Charlotte was a great place to do it, so that's, nice. that's why Charlotte. And we had, we had a, ironically, we had another relative here in the, in the Charlotte area uh, who was a lawyer and had a thriving practice here, so we felt like we had a base. So was there any kind of culture shock when you hit the ground here? Oh, huge. Yeah, huge, huge culture shock. I, I, I didn't know English. I mean, I knew, I knew just a, the, the basic hellos and goodbyes and thank you and hamburgers and pizza. <laughs> but, uh, the main things. The main things, yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but no, I didn't know English and I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I didn't know about the culture. The only culture I knew was what I saw in movies and, and Disney World. Right. Um, so, yeah, when we moved here, it was a huge culture shock. Um, so and, uh, did you enroll in school immediately? Yeah, yeah. I, I went, to, uh, went to, the, to, to, I spent a semester at the, at the Grand Ole uh, West Charlotte High School, okay, and uh, which was the only high school that probably took us immigrant right away. <laughs> oh, and, uh, <laughs> and then I transferred to uh, uh, Ashbrook High School, which was in Gastonia. That's where my father ended up. My mom and dad almost ended up buying a house in Gastonia. So, what's that process like? You hit the ground here. You know, like five words in English. You enroll in a school. What was the process of trying to figure it all out that quickly? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of swimmer, swimmer, swimmer sink kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you, I, so I got thrown into ESL classes, um, right away at West Charlotte. And then by the end of that semester that I spent, which was the only semester I spent in West Charlotte, I knew that I did not want to be in ESL classes. I said, you know, I, I just take me out of ESL classes, put me in, just put me in just with general population. <laughs> I didn't. It's prison. You know, I, I, I did not, uh, because I knew if it, if I did not, push myself to actually have to be forced to use a new language and a new language skills and learn it in a way where um, I can blend in with locals. I would never, I would never truly blend in. I would never truly understand and fully absorb, you know, absorb the American culture, which I loved. Uh, I loved the American culture from the moment I landed here and I, I, I loved everything about it. So I wanted to absorb as much of it as possible. And to me, that process had to involve, unfortunately, really going through, you know, 
drinking drinking water from a fire hose because if I didn't do that, I looked around and I saw these other student immigrants who were in this in in, in high school with me, uh, and even beyond. I saw people that were immigrants that were that were much older than I was, and they had accents and they still had their uh, you know cultural circle, ethnic cultural circles. And why I don't know why, but for some reason, for me that wasn't that wasn't right. I did not want that. I wanted an American culture. I wanted the American circle of friends. I wanted an American identity. And in order for me to discover that American identity, for me, I had to completely almost break down my Syrian identity in order to adapt to my new American identity. So, I mean, that's that's a strong position to take at 16 years old to say. Uh, you know, I'm in this class. I want something harder. I want something that's going to challenge me more because I don't know. I, I, I'd like to think that I would have thought that, but I feel like at 16 years old, if I'd have gotten something more challenging than high school already was for me, I don't know that I would have made that same decision. Um, so that's a strong moment there for you to decide I need a bigger challenge. I want to be thrown in basically sink or swim. Yeah. But uh, there's there's a book that I read called Mastery by a guy named Robert Green. I highly recommend it. But it speaks to that process. Like, if you're not in a sink or swim moment, you're not going to swim. If you're never thrown into that deep end of the pool where you have to physically do it, you're not going to do it. Um, so I think that speaks volumes about the work ethic that you obviously had from a very young age. Um, I assume your father probably put some of that in you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he definitely did. He definitely did. He made sure I, I understood work ethics very early on. Yeah. Very early on, even though he... Gave us, like I said, a, a very good life, but he made sure that I understood work and understood work ethic. Even when I was 13 years old, I yeah. started working. Yeah, I remember you, uh, I heard you talk a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you were telling us things it was about your first job. That's right, that's right, yeah. And as, what was that, pushing a broom somewhere? Yeah, as, as, a, as an assistant to a carpenter, essentially, like a, a carpenter's, you know, hand boy, essentially. Yeah, so. sure. And how long did you do that for? Uh, probably, probably a few months. And then I moved on to be, a, a an HVAC guy, hand boy. So I, <laughs> I, I worked for somebody who replaced air conditioners and, and, uh, you know, Freon packs for, for refrigerators. Was there any thought process while you were doing that of like, I don't want to do this long term? You know, I, I always absorb everything that I do, um, at the moment that it's done. Uh, meaning that I try to take, I try to take positive, um, positive bits out of everything I do and, and just try to do it well. Um, I, I, yes, I, in my mind, did I think that I was going to do this forever? No. Um, did I think this was going to be something that was done temporarily? Yes. Um, but I approached it from the standpoint of I wanted to be the best I could be at being an, you know, a, an HVAC boy or, yeah. or, a, a, you know, a carpenter's helper or whatever that, whatever that may be. Uh, whether it's showing up early at the shop, sweeping extra late, or you know, learning a little bit more about, you know, how Freons get installed in refrigerators, uh, you know, so it, I, I, I always because I, I always see the positive in things. I'm a very positive, very very positive guy in, in, in general. I, I see I see the glass half full always, no matter what situation you almost no matter what situation you throw me in. And uh, if you're that kind of person, usually. It's, it's 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 good and bad. There's there's also obviously a curse to that because you're always super optimistic about everything, which could be annoying. It can be uh, easy to let down get let down sometimes too. Uh, yeah, it could be it could be, but you just kind of you know lick your wounds and move on. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely. Yeah. 
But yeah, play uh, the but hand it, that you're dealt, I suppose. Yeah, it is, and it could be annoying to sometimes family or you know friends, where it's like, oh my god, you're 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 always you're always trying to, you know, you always have your dreams or your your ideas are always, uh, you know, grandiose. Even though they're not really grandiose, I'm just I'm just positive about them. Well, and at the end of the day, I mean, I think this is one of it's gotten to a point with entrepreneurs where uh, you hear it a lot, though. If you don't have big goals, you're not going to succeed. That's big right. Things. You know, That's right. If, if the things that you're striving for aren't huge, your successes are never going to be huge. That's right. That's um, right. And but I mean, obviously, a lot of people they strive at big things and then they fail, and I think they get scared. Instead of looking at it, you know, the way you did with the failure, you said earlier. You know, you said I we we tried to do something, we put it together, we failed. But we found a lot of really good cards to put back in our hands that we could play moving forward. Of course, of course. Um, no, absolutely. And, and and what you said earlier just made me think of my mom when you said, everything I do, I try to do it to the best of my capability. And it made me think I'm really glad that you weren't in my family because my mother would have loved you more than me. <laughs> uh, because she always would tell me that. I had a job at Hardee's for a couple of years. I had a lot of jobs. I worked a lot because they, you know, that's what we did in my family. We worked a lot. But I never, I was all, I always felt like I, as a kid, I was just arrogant and I felt like I was too good for those jobs. Yeah. And my mom was like, you're not too good for anything. You know, I know that now, but at the time I didn't really understand that. And she was like, whatever you're doing, you should be the best at it. If you're washing windows, they should be the cleanest windows. That's right. You know, That's and, right. and those words mean so much to me now. But as a kid, I was like, eh, whatever, ma. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> well, I mean, I think coming from, I, I was the youngest of five. So, um, so that by itself is a byproduct of, of you know, a, a creating a person who have such high standards to perform to. Um, my family, my siblings are uh, one doctor, two engineers, uh, one architect. So that's who I was benchmarked against. Sure. Um, and one Set of them the bar was, very low for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So one of them is a very successful doctor still to this day. Um, but, so, I, you know, mediocrity wasn't an option for me, you know, uh, languishing in, um, I'll just get by wasn't, wasn't an option. So whatever I did, I had to over exceed whatever, whatever everybody else did. Right. In order to somewhat prove myself. Right. So, and where were you again in that, in that mix up of the youngest, of the youngest, the youngest, I was the fifth. Gotcha. Cause I've read a lot of different research about, you know, the, who, who tends to perform the best. I think the youngest usually does well. I think the middle is the one that usually ends up being the stand up comedian. Probably. Um, cause they don't get any attention. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, you get, you go to high school at 16, uh, you know, you kind of thrust yourself into it. You learn the language and then you go to UNC Charlotte. Was that right after high school? No, actually, it wasn't right after high school. After high school, my father um, just at the time, we, because we were immigrant, we were we were still not citizens. We're still we're trying to figure out our paperwork and um, our residencies and all that kind of stuff. We, uh, if I had chosen to go to UNCC at the time, it would have been out of state tuition, and uh, my father just didn't have the money to do it, to to put me through UNCC at the time. Um, Sure. In order for us to immigrate to the United States, that's something I didn't mention before. My father had to give up almost everything to to come here. We left. He left everything behind. He left his, you know, whatever, you know, amount of wealth that he had, whatever, uh, whatever ownership of land and buildings that he had, um, gave it all up to to move here. Uh, so we had to start from. I don't want to say scratch, but pretty close to pretty, over. Pretty low on the on the, on the totem pole. Right. We, we were moved here. 
Um, so one of the things I, I wanted to ask you that was interesting about your story, uh, do you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is? I've heard of him. Yeah. He's a very successful entrepreneur. His, his parents are uh, Russian immigrants. And he frequently says that he feels like, I think he came over when he was three or four years old. He said he feels like he had a leg up being an immigrant because he, you know, he came from somewhere where the opportunity didn't exist. And I don't know much about uh, the socioeconomic background of Syria. Uh, but he said he came here and he just saw an opportunity that, and his parents saw opportunity that they didn't have. And he felt like he had this leg up because he wasn't born here and he didn't grow up with the cult set and you know, that kind of mindset of abundance where, you know, no matter what you do, there's always going to be a meal on the table. Uh, for the most part, do you feel like that influenced the way you, you know, your work ethic, the way you came up at all? Yeah, yeah, to to, to some degree, yes. Uh, not maybe not in the same experience as he does. Um, uh, to to me, I I kind of knew what having was what or felt like because we had it when we were in Syria and then moved then moved here and then didn't have anything. I mean, moved from having a you know. A three thousand, four thousand square foot penthouse in Syria is what we lived in, in a in a building, in a in a in a um, um, essentially a, a a luxury building yeah. to uh, moving to Gastonia, North Carolina. That's or, a tough you know, shakeup at sixteen or, or, years old. You know, to to a, a house in actually Charlotte, North Carolina, in the beginning to a rental house, to like a rental apartment, um, to really not having anything to, to my dad and mom telling me that, that we can't really afford to send you to college next year because they're charging too high and we just don't have the money. Yeah. Um, so I had to take almost a year to work. Um, and then I got into, um, I took about six months to work. Uh, and uh, I got into Gaston College. went to Gaston College for about another almost year. And then from Gaston College, I transferred to UNCC. Nice. Yeah. And you were working your way through at that point as well? I did. Yeah. Gaston College, for anybody who doesn't know, is a community college. Hey, so. I, I'm, I'm a student of community college myself as well. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a big yeah. fan. It's a very good place to get started, especially. I mean, I think I went to community college for a different reason. I just wasn't ready for big boy college yet. Yeah. And uh, yeah. But my mom was like, you're going to school. And right. And I was like, well, I'll go here. And so yeah. I went to a community college at the beach. Right. I was like, you right. know, we can go to the beach. There you go. That'd be fun. There you go. Um, but uh, I'm a big fan of community colleges. It's a really good way to get started. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then transfer to a four-year school. So from there, you go to UNCC. Yep. And what, at that point, what are you, 1920 at that time? Yeah, 19, yeah. Yeah, what are you yeah. thinking? When you go to UNCC, what What do you think's happening next? Like, in your mind, what are you chasing at that moment? Uh, I, I'm, I'm chasing the American dream. I'm chasing the American way. I mean, I, I always have probably from the time I was 17, there was a, from, from that, the time that switch clicked in my head where, you know, I am not a, I don't want to assimilate as an immigrant. I want to assimilate as an American. I want to experience and absorb and, and, you know, have the American experience fully in my DNA. That's when sort of everything clicked for me. And, um, at 19, I just wanted to, um, uh, experience what, I, I tried to experience what any other college kid would experience. Um, I, you know, I joined a fraternity. I, uh, I still worked part time in 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 college because uh, I had to. You know, what were to, you doing? Uh, I, I mean, I did everything. I did waiter. I, I was a waiter. I, I you know, I, yeah, I that was a, most of my college experience was waiting tables. Yeah, I, I waited table. I worked for. I, I you know, I worked for my brother had had still had a company. So I worked for my brother's company at the time, which was a, you know a little a little the startup that he started with my father. So. I worked with him for a while. 
I did everything. I did I did all kinds of odds and ends, and um, uh, yeah. And I tried I tried to have somewhat of a what I perceived was a normal was an American college experience. Sure. Yeah. Nice. So, was were you get were you in business schools at that time? Like, what was your idea as far as occupation when you went to school? Oh God, no, no. I was I was I mean, as an immigrant, my father obviously wanted me to study engineering for some reason. You know, Middle Easterners always get thrown into engineering. Like, you know, you you're not studying engineering. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so, um, you know, I I I went into. I said no. I know engineering. I tried engineering for a few months. I was like, it's not going to be engineering for me. So I switched to business. And he's like, okay, business is good. Maybe law. Like, <laughs> Maybe a doctor. I don't Maybe know. a doctor. I'm like, no, no, and it's not gonna. It's not gonna be. It's not gonna be. It's not gonna be law. Um, uh, but I stuck with. Um, I stuck with with economics and English, and I, I, I had like two major. I had. A, I was a double major. I was a major in in, in um, uh, economics and, and English, and I had a minor in history. Uh, that, that was that was my official. Uh, on the record, uh, double major and minor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I took painting when I was in college too. Okay. Uh, like art. Yeah, painting. yeah. I got you. Yeah. And and I did some theater when I was in college. Uh, I was making up for lost time, man. Yeah. Took a lot of classes. I did. Uh, I did. I took a lot of classes. I did a similar thing. I don't even know. I, I think I graduated with like 30 extra credits than I needed because when I was in community college, I would just kind of show up at the registration day and just be like, yeah, hey, that seems nice. Give yeah. me one of those. Yeah, Eastern religions. That seems fun too. Yeah, Philosophy. Exactly. Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, me. That's me. Yeah, I just took whatever they had on the table. Music appreciation. I was like, I like music. I didn't realize it was going to be a lot of music I'd never heard before. Yeah. That you yeah. know, I didn't really like at the time, but I, yeah, whatever. Uh, so yeah, I took a lot of random classes that I ended up with, which I think made me a more well-rounded person. Yeah, of course. Of um, course. So from there, you graduate with all of this. What's the next step? Where do you go? Next step, I tried to I tried to work with my brother um, at a at this at this at this computer startup that he had, the technology startup that he had. And what year time. was this? Uh, this was uh, ninety five, ninety four. Um, and uh, didn't work. We butted heads too much. Um, it sounds it was, like you guys had the right idea, though. You know, we did. You're, you're you're clearly delving into an industry that was on you know launching yeah, into oh, the stratosphere absolutely. in that moment. So. Absolutely, no, it was it was definitely launching big time. I mean, you know, the computer the, the computer company he had at the time, and my brother was was always one of my inspirations to me. Um, don't tell him that. Hopefully, the show will just nah, he'll, ne- he'll never hear it. <laughs> um, you know, I always looked up to him, even though we butted heads. Uh, I mean, he was like always there for me. He was like a second father to me, um, and. Um, uh, we just butted heads too much right after college. Sure. I, I, we, Kids. I, we tried. He fired me a couple of times. <laughs> I came back a couple of times. How much older is he? He's 11 years old. Okay. Almost so it's 11, kind of substantial. Yeah, substantial. Yeah. yeah. We had family businesses too. And uh, my grandma ran a business. My mom ran a business. And everyone's kind of worked for one or two of them throughout it. And everyone's been fired as well. Yeah. yeah. So we know the family firing well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Come back next year. See if you're older and more mature. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So where do you go from there? Uh, I, I got a job with a uh, defense contractor um, and uh, ended up traveling with them a good amount um, across the country. I lived in a few different places, uh, West Coast, East Coast. Um and it really taught me a lot uh, about about sales, consulting, um, um, 
how big our military was yeah. <laughs> at the time. I visited a lot of a lot of army and air force bases and uh was 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 reminded of how big big our military operation is. Sure. So is this kind of like mid 20s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of are you single and traveling at this point? Oh, absolutely. Point? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was nice. single traveling, living in different places. Um well, I, I, maybe not completely single, but you know, for, for the most part, single. Right. Yeah, exactly. Single right. enough. Single enough. That's right. All right. So where do we go from there? Uh, so from there, the technology implosion happens in 99, 2000. Yeah. And uh, the company I was with gets uh, essentially disintegrated, uh, get bought out by a private equity company. And um, at the time, I, I didn't even know what private equity meant. I was <laughs> I was just getting my arms around what private equity means. And how old are you at this point? Uh, this was, uh, God, I was 26, 27, 28. No, no, I, no, God, I was 29. Yeah, was so 29 I think that's an important thing for the listeners. At 29 yes. years old, he didn't even know what the name of what he does for a living now, essentially, was. That's right. So I think the moral there is... Keep working at it. It's not too late. It's but, never too late. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Keep it, after it. Absolutely. It 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 definitely never too late. It's all about it's all about stages in life. It's all about where you are and what you explore in your life at the time. Um, because that's just, just what life is all about. It's all about, you know, what what is going on at that particular stage and what you learn from it and how you grow and mature out of it and 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 use for the next step. Um so from that point, I, I, I had to switch. I had to really, uh, there was no technology industry to go back to. The technology industry was in complete disarray. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was the explosion of the, you know, the, 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 the bubble at the time. And um, through talking to many sage people in my life at the time, they said, well, why not the financial industry and investments? That could be a, a career for you, a career path for you. Right. Um, so I said, "Why not? That sounds good. Uh, let's 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 do that. What can I do that would would make me stand out in the financial industry?" I said, "Well, you need to you need to at some point work through it and then get an MBA." I said, "Okay, that's, that, that sounds good. I'll do that." Right. So, um, uh, where's the best place to do it? I said, "You know, let's let's pick let's pick some place where there's a huge concentration of universities and colleges for me to choose from." And that ended up being Boston, Massachusetts. So I had kind of forty. 48 colleges and universities within the city limp, city uh, surrounding of Boston, Massachusetts. So yeah. that's where I moved to. Plus, and it's a cool city, too. And it's a cool city. Plus, I had a sister and a couple of sisters that lived there. Oh, nice. Yeah. So did you, was the idea to go there, work a little bit, get your MBA? That's right. That's right. Went, go there, work a little bit, get my MBA. Um, I went to work for Morgan Stanley um, at the time in um, uh, private wealth and... Um, uh, it was great. It was a fantastic experience. It was it was one of the probably best sales camp experience that I've ever had. Um, sales boot camp experience that I've ever had. Right. Um, it was uh, it was a wake up at you know get in the office at six thirty in the morning, go work out at five o'clock in the afternoon, come back to the office at six o'clock, and just hit it until ten o'clock at, at night, and then call it a day. Right. Um, and that was. You know, five six days a week, really, because I'd come back on a, come in on a Saturdays too. Sure. Um, you know, it's that that whole you know uh, carpenter sweeper in me that just wanted to do the best I can in that particular job. Yeah, be the best that you are at it. That's right. So you're working at Morgan Stanley. Where do you go from there? 
Uh, I, I, I moved in the investment industry for uh, a few years. Well, from Morgan Stanley, I, uh, as, a, as the uh, universe have intended somehow or another, I came across a project that was in real estate. Uh, and it was a huge project that uh, myself and my partners at the time at Morgan Stanley came across and we worked on. It was a huge finance, uh, structured finance project that was a $1.5 billion building that was getting built in Miami that the owner wanted to build this this humongous edifice of humanity nice. that he wanted to finance through Morgan Stanley and a bunch of others. We worked on it for a while. It, the project itself ended up being... Uh, not a failure, but it just didn't, it, it never matured. Um, some of the people, the elements that were working in the project came to me and my my partners and said, hey, if you guys are ever on your own, we'd love to work with you independently. And, and we have a few projects that we want to kind of work with. And you that's kind of where we circle back to kind of where you found your way in real estate. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And um, it was, uh, it, it, so we, two months, three months after they had that conversation with us, we started our own Consulting and structured finance uh, company in Boston. In Boston, um, uh, um, aptly named Boston Venture Partners, that still actually exists now. Nice. Um, and um, we uh, worked on projects in Boston, uh, Philadelphia, um, Miami, New York. We had a couple of projects in New York, and we had a project in London that we worked on. So, what brings you to Charlotte? Um, or back home, I suppose. Yes, yes. It, 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 life is an interesting circle, isn't it? Uh, we, um, you can you can flip back about you know almost ten years later or eight years later. Uh, went through many iterations of investment and in investment world and finance world. Uh, went through an, an implosion in real estate in two thousand eight, two thousand seven. We had to close down the company, reopen a different company. Um, I'm meaning my consulting company at the time. Uh, had to get a. A, a real daytime job working for commercial banks and 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 venture capital companies uh, at the time and uh, and then in in uh, during that time my brother uh, had launched a new company a new commercial real estate company in 2007 that was buying apartment acquiring apartment complexes and commercial office spaces and um, so was that market starting to bud at that point? Well, 2007 was was essentially the start of the. You know, it was the real estate implosion and real estate takeoff. Everyone kind of lost their house and started renting. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Everybody lost their house and started renting. That's exactly right. And that's so your brother kind of saw that coming. And he, he didn't. I don't know if he saw that coming. I, I'd let's like not give, give him too much credit. I'd like to give him that credit. <laughs> I'd like to give him that credit, but I don't know if he was that much of a genius. Yeah, he'd, um, he'd probably have a lot more money if he if he had been. I know, I know, but 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 uh, you know, as as circumstances may be, that's that's when that's when he got into the industry. And, and buying apartments in 2007, and um, yeah, that was uh, very fortunate. Exactly, exactly. And then uh, kept buying, and and we, I started getting involved slowly into the business. A um, few years later, um, from 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 Boston at the time, he was in Charlotte. Uh, and then about three years ago, um, two or three years ago, we decided that just 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 wasn't working out. I mean, I can't I can't really. Uh, get into the business completely with him and and expand it and and uh, do a private equity platform and do a launch a fund all from a thousand miles away. So I had to about a year year ago I had to make the decision to move the family from Boston to to Charlotte. Family take that okay? 
Uh, it took a while. So it, it, the conversation started two years prior to that. And it took two years for my wife to, to be convinced to, to move to Boston. How's to, she to doing? Charlotte. She like it here? She likes it here. She Good. likes it here. Yeah. Yeah, she likes it. So obviously the apartment industry, and you clearly know way more about it than me, but just living here is red hot. Uh, they're going up everywhere. Everywhere I look, they're building apartments. And, you know, I, I know a little bit, I, I research a little, and the occupancy rates and the rent growth is stronger than historical norms have ever seen it be. Why is it like that right now? Well, it, 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 uh, millennials, mainly. Uh, the short answer is millennials. Uh, <laughs> millennials who who you found recently that you are one of them. Yeah, apparently. Uh, we were talking about that earlier off the mic. Uh I apparently am a millennial. I didn't know that. Uh, I was born six months into 1980, so I'm a millennial, <laughs> not Generation X, as I had always thought. <laughs> you, you, so. You're not cool enough to be Generation X. Nah. No, that's, that's what I am. Um, it, it, millennials, in, in a short, because millennials really, um, because of where their parents came from and uh, the kind of economic and social circumstances they came from, they are very um, non-sedentary in their ways, meaning they're very... I don't want to say nomadic, but they're very nomadic. Transient. Transient. Uh, they they like to live in a place. Um, they don't want to be tied down to a place. They like to uh, have the ability and the freedom to move around. Um, they are getting educated, um, some of them highly educated. And they don't want to take the chance of taking a job with a company that's going to move them six months later. Or they, you know, if they employ, they got employment in Charlotte. North Carolina, they want to have the ability to move to San Francisco next year, or Boston, or New York. Um, and buying a house is a tether that they rather do without. Sure. So, as a result, the apartment industry is thriving. I think the age-old wisdom, uh, and, and obviously millennials do move around more, but the age-old wisdom was to buy a house, you're investing uh, you're gaining equity, and even if you move, you can rent it out, and now you own property. Uh, have you kind of seen that go by the wayside more? Well, I mean, that, that again, that kind of the implosion of 2006, 2007 housing crisis precipitated their notion, millennials' notion of what what equity in houses means and not does not mean. Right. Might you not know, exist tomorrow. Might not exist tomorrow. They saw their parents, some of them, uh, on the, if, who are on the younger side, if, if they're, you know, in 2007, they were maybe in their teens, saw their parents, maybe some of them lose a house. Um, and uh, that lifted better, bitter taste in, in, in their mouth. And they, they really did not view real estate in the same token as what their parents may have, maybe Generation Xers, or definitely, certainly not the same token as, as what uh, baby boomers are viewing, sure. uh, have viewed real estate. Because they have always viewed real estate as a, as a wealth builder, as a... As a safety net. Right, that's where um, your money is. That's where your money is. Uh, that's not how millennials view it. And millennials don't view it as such. Uh, millennials view it as a transaction. Uh, and it depends on how good the transaction is. Sometimes it's a good transaction, sometimes it's a bad transaction, which may be a more pragmatic way to view it, to be honest with you. That's how we view real estate now as real estate owners and investors. Sure. So obviously, I, I think anyone who lives at least in an urban area sees rent every year is jumping. I mean, I think in Charlotte, probably three to 4% per year. While we have rates of inflation that are relatively steady and almost flat last year. Um, do you think that's going to continue? Uh, well, look, I think we're, we're somewhat of a, 
at, at, a, at a top of a cycle. Um, we're sitting here, fortunately, today um, after the, an election, after a historic election. And um, we, we really don't know what the next couple of years are going to look like from a um, policy standpoint. Uh, we know that the new president-elect Donald Trump is going to have some notion of uh, fiscal and, 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 and uh, financial change to uh, the economy in the next couple of years. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know if the fiscal policy is going to uh, sort of continue the easing that they've had for the past couple of years. Uh, we don't see, uh, regardless of who's in control in the White House, we don't really see uh, a, a huge change in, in the fiscal stimulus policy. So we're meaning the federal fund rate. Um, which is right now next to next to nothing, next to about a quarter percent or so. Uh, we see a probably a, a, a small rise in that, which will really not affect the overall economic circumstances by that much. Uh, meaning, we're probably looking at a two percent, two and a half percent environment for the foreseeable two to four years. Okay. Uh, so, so really, not a lot of change, not a lot of growth, not a lot of contraction. Um, Meaning we could be at a at a top of a cycle, but we don't know what that top looks like. It, it could be a flat top that's going to last for another, you know, 16 months, 12 months, 25 months. We, we really don't know. Uh, I wish I knew. I, sure. You know, I, would, <laughs> I would make out like a bandit. Uh, but I don't know. And, and, and I don't, what I, what I do know is I don't think it's going to be a cliff on the other side, which is, I guess, it could be a silver lining. Um, unlike 2007, 2008, uh, the leverage is not used the same way as 2007, 2008. And there's a lot of cash on the side, a lot of cash on the side this time around, both from institution, uh, institutional cash and, and, and private, private wealth cash. Um, so the dip that's going to take place, whether it's 12 months, 18 months, 24 months from now, is going to be a prob- most likely will hopefully will be a dip and not a crash. Gotcha. Yeah, because that, that's the thing I've been looking at is the rent has been going up so much higher each year than inflation has been going up. And that's, to be fair, it's one of the things that drove us into home ownership. Right. Is what we were getting for what we were paying was getting to be so much less. We had an idea. This is what our budget is. This is what we want to spend. And every year it was going up. I mean, just so much more than I'd been used to because I've been renting most of my life since I went to college. And then we started looking at the housing market, and we were able to buy a house at, and our mortgage is at a rate. Now, obviously, you know, we had a plumber in here yesterday because that's the joy of home ownership. Of course. But uh, at the end of the day, our mortgage is so much less than our rent was. Is that something that you feel might start affecting the market more and more? Well, well, what you're noticing here is 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 very geographically driven. So your your mortgage here may not may be a lot less than what rent is uh, here in the Carolinas. But if you were, if you were to change areas, that may not be the same case. If you were to go up to the Boston area, for instance, sure, um, your your mortgage may not be less than your rent. And a lot of times, sometimes your mortgage may be more than your rent. Right. Um, however, over there, you have a, di- a little bit different dynamics as far as the housing price is concerned and what the what the projection of housing prices are over there, especially in places like Boston or New York, uh, you have you know hyperinflation when it comes to housing prices. Their housing prices are increasing by the by by double digits, you know, year after year, as opposed to you know the the normal mode of three to four percent a year for housing prices here here down south. 
Um, it depends where you are, obviously. It's, I mean, look, housing prices are very, very insular in their nature, meaning they're very uh, driven by their very specific areas, not just by state, but really by your locality. Um, so if you buy a house in South Park, obviously your dynamics of what your house prices are going to look like are going to be wildly different from what your house is going to house price is going to look like if you buy Mint Hill sure. or in Gastonia or in Rock Hill, South Carolina or in Greensboro. So it, it, it really is very, very specifically locally driven um, geographical drivers that are going to dictate those those numbers uh, in real estate. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and and I guess most of the thing I'm looking at is kind of in these urban areas like Charlotte. Right. Um, you know, I see I see here, um, and you know, not being a student of the market as well myself, it's not my area. But I see these houses going up, and you know, not houses. I see these apartments going up South End, especially uh, in Uptown. And I'm, I'm thinking, is there enough people to fill these? And then I'm looking at the vacancy rates, and I'm like, clearly there is. Um, and then the rents going up, and people haven't. I haven't seen that any exodus really. Um, and that's what I'd ask you. Have you seen any of it in Charlotte? No, we're seeing we're seeing more people pour in that rather than pour, pour well, out. Well, I mean, I guess Exodus from the from the apartment market. Uh, we're going to start to see more of that, but it's going to get replenished because there's going to be a lot more people moving into the areas like the Charlotte, North Carolina, um, uh, you know, uh, Charleston, West Virginia, um, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, uh, Knoxville, Jacksonville, um, Austin, Texas, um, all these all these centers that are that are garnering now what's what's being dubbed as you know fantastic centers of for younger families and and working professionals, uh, maybe even innovation. Charlotte itself is having an innovation renaissance here, yeah. uh, where there's a huge technology hub now um, for startups and 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 for early stage companies. So. I don't see that abating anytime soon. So I think I, I think you're going to see more influx of people coming in from from the north northeast areas, such as you know Boston, New Yorks, and and, and the likes. And uh, whatever exodus you're seeing out of out of Charlotte or out of the rental market into home ownership will easily get replenished by newer blood coming in to fill their ranks. Gotcha. Um, Look, I think I, the people who are leaving the rental marketing and going into housing, I think it's a matter of, of it's an age dynamics. It's a stage of life dynamics. Yeah, that's probably something I don't want to admit to myself either. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, you're yeah. getting older, buddy. You, you, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's people who have a kid on the way or, you know, you, you live this 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 sort of nomadic, you know, unsedentary lifestyle that we were talking about earlier for for millennials or for any anybody, I don't want to just generalize and say millennials, uh, will stop at one point when you realize that hey, I have a I have a kid coming or I have the second kid coming. I gotta get my shit together. I gotta get gotta get my <laughs> shit together. I, I can't live in this uh, 11, you know thousand square foot apartment anymore. Yeah. Uh, with two dogs, yeah, you know, I I might need more than just a two bedroom place to accommodate for for the new baby. Um, so that's that's when you'll see in a flight from from rental to home ownership. Gotcha. So it sounds like more uh, apartments are still a very good investment. Absolutely, absolutely, very good. And so is home ownership. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, so we talk a lot on the podcast about personal development. One of my one of the big things that we try to impress upon people is making decisions today. And, and not just today, but every single day that are going to get you where you want to be in life. So you can turn around and look at yourself and, and genuinely appreciate 
who you were and what you did and the sacrifices you made to get where you are. And clearly from hearing your story, you've made a lot of those sacrifices. Um, so one of the things I want to try to break down for the listener is like, what, what are your day to days like? Are there any habits or routines that you try to implement every single day? Cause that's really where you see the difference between successful people and non-successful people is what are they doing every day? It's not those big moments that define them. It's those things that they're doing every day that leads to those big moments. Yeah. So, so you have to, for me, you you have to have a plan, and you have to have a steps to executing that plan, and you have a have you have to have a check on how you're doing on that plan all the time on a regular basis. Meaning, for me personally, I have to have a you know there's there's a there's a short term and a medium term plan for uh, us and the company as a, you know, we meet strategically on a regular basis. We come up with a strategy of what we're going to execute for the next month, for the next three months, for the next six months, and then we have check-ins on a regular basis on how we're doing on those goals. Um, but that could sometimes get lost in a shovel if you don't have, if you don't have a daily plan or a weekly plan. Um, so uh, on a on a reg, I'm a, I I told you earlier I'm a, I live and die by you know what's on my calendar, what's on my outlook, what's on my you know, Google calendar. Yeah. And the um, listeners know the same thing about me. I say it all the time. Like if, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't get done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it really helps a lot to see it, to see what you're, what you need to do and what you're about to do and what you want to get accomplished. Uh, I make a habit of, uh, for me, I carry a, I carry a notebook all the time, everywhere I go. Like um, a written notepad? A, a written notepad, an actual written notepad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I use a similar thing, but mine's on my phone. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It's Mine is old school. I, I, I love the, it, it, it's a habit I got instilled in me back from my, my, my stockbroker days. Um, uh, one of my earlier mentors told me to keep track of every single phone call, every single conversation, every single meeting. It's a great idea. In a notepad. So uh, from that day on, I've kept a notepad for the past 15, 16, 18 years of my professional life. Um, and I, you know, in that notepad, I, I update it on a regular basis. I drop down what I need to do for that day, and then I drop down what I need to do for the next day. So every, every morning when I come into the office, I jot down um, what I need to do for that day um, and what, you know, I have check marks next to it or not. Old school, again. Yeah. Actual written you know, notes. And, uh, and then I check back in it the next day and sort of cross off what I, what I've done, what I need to get done or who I need to get in touch with. And now kind of how regimented is your day? You know, when you look at your day, if something was to take 20 minutes out of your day, would you notice it? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I would notice it. I mean, it, it, the day is broken up to, you have to structure your days. What is your highest ROI? So you concentrate on that, and then you and then you kind of work your way down from that. You know, for me, the highest ROI is getting in touch with investors or following up on investors, right? Whether it's institutional, talk, single investor. Talk to the money people. Talk to the money people. So so talk to the money people first, or make sure your your follow ups with the money people are, is is priority in your day. Yeah. After that, um, operational comes next. So whatever whatever um, we're doing as far as media, social media, any kind of marketing materials, anything that has to do with operational marketing outreach is, is, has to get done. And then third in line is fluff. Like, you know, 
um, the rest of it. The rest of it. I, you know, I don't know, <laughs> filling out HR forms or, um, or, or you know, posting an ad somewhere or, or whatever. Something that, that is not generating ROI for me, ROI for me right now. Right. Um, and then, unfortunately, fourth, fourth in line is, is, is personal stuff, which, you know, should, should never come into any of your priority during the day. Uh, if you're really trying to get things accomplished, always prioritize your personal stuff either in the very, very beginning of the day, meaning really early in the day, like before you even start your day, yeah, or really late in the day, like at five o'clock, you know, or six o'clock, or whenever you end your day. Uh, that's that's when I look at you know, like you know, shit. I need a new pair of pants. Let me go to jcrew.com and order a new pair of pants. Right. You know, and that's when you say very early in the day. That's one of the things I've only learned in the last few years is to really embrace that time before the sun comes up. It, it makes me feel old, but I, I embrace it as well because I wake up, you know, we wake up around six every day. No alarm clock generally, just because you do it every single day. And I love those two hours. Those are my favorite two hours of the entire day. The phone doesn't ring. No one needs anything. I'm not getting any emails of consequence. And that is when I can sit and focus and get work done. Um, and so that's what I tell whenever, like whenever I talk to kids I'm mentoring, that's what I tell them. Like, you need to start waking up earlier. Oh yeah, because once the day starts, things go to hell. Oh, absolutely. You know, like absolutely. things start coming up. People need you. You got to start doing things, and you have to start handling situations, putting out fires. There are almost never fires between six and eight. No, absolutely. I got a buddy who's like, he's like, I got to get up at four thirty. I'm like, I'm not get, I'm not there yet. I got up at five thirty, so I'm I'm up at five thirty every day, and that's that's my time. That's that's uh, that's when I catch up on you know. Knowledge, meaning you know, if I need to peruse industry news, um, local news, or not really local, I don't really care a shit about local news. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's usually it's it's usually national news or um, industry news, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Uh, that's when that stuff get read um, between five thirty and seven, and that's when I get my I have to get my kid to school after that. Right, but five uh, thirty to seven is my time. Whether I need it, I use it for running. I run a good amount, so I either use it for running or I use it for uh, catch up on news or just relax, have a cup of coffee, unwind yeah, a little bit. My time. It's weird to say unwind in the morning. I know. I know exactly what you mean. But uh, it really is. It's a it's a kind of this this zen moment of you know just getting yourself focused for the day that that's about to come. Yeah, I think um, that's incredibly important too, and it's something I get, I just figured out is that moment in time because most of my life. I woke up five minutes before it was. I needed to actually be doing something, and it's so stressful. It's very stressful. It's very stressful. I, I, I waking up. I can't even imagine waking up and having to wake up, take a shower, and go to work. Yeah. Uh, and so many people do that. Wake up, take a shower, go to work. Wake up, take a shower, go to work. Wake up, take a shower, put the kids in in, in the car, and go to work. Wake up just a little bit earlier. Yeah. Just a little bit earlier. Not. I'm not. You know. Don't have to wake up too much earlier. But wake up 45 minutes early. You'd be surprised of how much grounding your life will have yeah just if you moment. wake up 45 minutes earlier open your eyes lay in bed with your eyes open right relax that's right and, and that's what you said it, it, just a moment to find yourself gather your thoughts and you're right unwind yeah because at night i go to bed you know usually around 9 30 i am not unwound no no when you're i go stressed. to bed sometimes you go to bed a lot of times a lot of us you know in the real world go to bed stressed yeah i just yeah. go to bed i'm like go to sleep Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Um, And then I do. I use that time in the morning to relax. And and we're actually sitting in my relaxed place right now. This is one of my places I like to relax. Yeah. yeah. Sun comes up. It's not right in my eye. That's right. 
Um, right. So yeah, I, I if, if you can take one thing away from this podcast today, it is wake up earlier and enjoy your morning. Because at night, you know, I used to be a night owl. I still be. I like to stay up late, stay up late. I stay up at one o'clock in the morning all the time. And it was just me. Everyone else is in bed. I'm just up watching TV or doing whatever. And not using the time, though. Not like actively using it the way I should have been. And then you wake up at 7.30 in the morning. you got to be to work at 8. You're brushing your teeth. You're going through the whole thing. And you're so stressed. You get to work. You're sweating because you had to run to the office so you weren't late. It's too tempting at night to do to do to like relax and have a zen moment because yeah. it's too tempting at night to not to like turn on TV, turn on Netflix. Yeah, that's the know, problem. Yeah, to catch up on your Walking Dead episodes, whatever it is yeah, that you're gonna exactly. do. Exactly. You know? So yeah, <laughs> you, you can't relax that at night. In the morning, it seems unnatural to do that. In the morning, it just seems like right. Know, it's, a, it's a it's the start of a new day. It's the beginning. It's the we beginning. Do it's things. The beginning of a new day. Yeah. Coffee's brewing. You know. Yeah. Uh, if you don't drink coffee, fuck you. You got to drink coffee. Yeah, I, I didn't. I <laughs> So I drank coffee in school when I was tired. I met my wife. She's an avid coffee drinker. So I would stay with her and she would make us coffee in the morning. And I'm like, oh, this is nice. It's nice. It's nice. Um, And it just became kind of the thing her and I did. And even then I would be away from her sometimes and I would have coffee because it made me feel like I was with her. Right. Kind of a little connection. And now I drink coffee every day. Yeah. So at 31 years old. I started drinking coffee. There you go. There you go. Way to go. <laughs> um, but yeah, now we for uh, we got a lot of gift cards when we got married, so we have a fancy coffee maker now that you can just set up at night, and it does the grinding and the brewing, Ooh. and you you wait, you go up at the right time. You know, you well, you hear it go off because it's like a chainsaw. Wow. Um, but it's ready to go in the morning. There so you it's go. Pretty damn nice. There you go. Uh, uh, the, the only other thing I would say I want to add to the morning routine. Is it, it, it again? It's another thing I learned earlier in my career. Is when you come into your workplace, whatever that may be, whatever it is you do, uh, the first thing you should be doing, or first some of the first steps you should be doing, is do something to get you out of your comfort zone. Um, you have no idea how well it sets up your day when you come in and do something out of your comfort zone. Meaning, if you come in in the morning. And you have a habit of you come in, in the morning. Some a lot of people have the habit of coming in, turning on their computer, and looking at Wall Street Journal or New York Times, even on their computer after they come to work, or check their emails. You know, oh, I, I just want to come in and check my emails. Why don't you come in and do something else? Like if you were in sales, coming, pick up the phone and call someone, call someone, a client or a prospective client. Get yourself completely thrown off your comfort zone. This is not something that you would normally do. You know, so when you come in and pick up the phone and call a client or call your prospective client, this is not your normal day. It's throwing you completely for a loop, but at the same time, you have no idea what kind of residual effect it's going to have on you because sometimes you will, if you're in sales, like I was before, you will catch people completely off guard if you come in at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, call someone and say, hey, what's going on? How are you? And they're like, oh, hi, what's going on? This is a 10 o'clock call. What's going on? This is a 10 o'clock call. Why, you know, you're calling me at 8 o'clock. Like, uh, what's going on? And then you sometimes have the most productive conversations at 8 o'clock or before. And then and then you can go back to doing whatever you're going to do, whether it's checking emails or whatever. But it sets your day off at such an interesting pace because you have completely unhinged yourself from the start of your day. When you've accomplished something real already. And you've accomplished something real already. And you've taken yourself out of your normal, like, 
come in, open your email, check your email, then go through your to-do list and go talk to Betty in accounting and then come back. Just just completely unhinge yourself when you first come in and do something completely out of your comfort zone. I really like that. I think that may be the best thing that uh, you know we've heard in a while. I, I, I'm definitely going to try to put that into my routine because I have a big problem and I've been trying to fight it for a long time of that. I get there, I sit down, and I just kind of have this thing. I do. I check my email. And that's one of the things that I've actively been trying to stop doing because I checked my email last night. Like yeah. I'm a small business owner. I check my email pretty frequently. And there's zero chance, for the most part, that anything that has to happen happened in the last eight hours. Um, and by the time I sit down on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, whatever morning it is, I have things I need to do. I've written them down. I know what they are. And But one of the struggles is starting right on them. That's right. Usually I want to sit down. I want to, hey, what's going on in email? You know, what? And I mean, I'll tell you, the death is Facebook. Um, I don't I don't know if uh, if that's something that you have a problem with at all. But, you know, us millennials, uh, Facebook got pretty important to us. It's, you know, we connect all of our friends are there and there's always something happening. There's a sense of self-importance there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's one of the things I've been trying to attack as well is not logging into Facebook because that's just a hole. Uh, oh, yeah. And yeah. for anyone, this is uh, the morning after the election that we're recording this was right. uh, was today. So anyone listening, that, yeah, there was well, today a, an exception. You got to pass on today. Today was an exception. Today an exception. You got to you got to pass on today. You got you got to check. Yeah. You got to check the results. It's an it's a, it's a historic <laughs> election. You, you'll get a pass on today. So there was some Facebooking done today. Yeah. But that's been the one of the things that I've really tried to make a concerted effort to is not to do exactly what you're saying. Don't sit down and start reading the news. Checking your email. Checking Facebook. Um, and it could be in small ways. It doesn't have to be. I mean, I, I spoke of it in terms of sales or sales, making a sales call or making a, an out, outbound call. Could be in, could be in completely different ways to get yourself out of that routine. Maybe instead of sitting down at your office, maybe you you go take a walk down and and go to go into a coffee shop you haven't gone into before. Uh, maybe uh, maybe if you work from home. Um, I don't know, going outside and knocking on your neighbor's door and say, hey, you want to have a cup of coffee? I don't know. Whatever that may, whatever it is that you don't normally do, do it. I like that. Well, and I love the big picture as well. I like the idea of brain hacking, essentially, is exactly. what it sounds like. That's exactly it. You know, you're trying to shake yourself out and get, you're trying to hack yourself into being more productive. That's right. And that's something we like to talk about a lot is different ways to increase your productivity without, you know, essentially working 19 hours every single day. Right, um, and and that is a big one. It's just being more productive in the moments that you're working. Right, Absolutely. which is hard. Yeah, um, it is because I, I, you know, I certainly love to to do all the things you were saying, but that's a fantastic bit of advice that I like. Um, thanks for leaving us with that. We're going to take a quick moment here to give a shout out to our affiliate partners on the show. Listeners, there are infinite paths to success, but they all start with knowledge. And I'm not just talking about school. The internet has brought us a multitude of free and inexpensive resources right to your fingertips. And one of my favorite resources is Udemy.com. You can learn virtually anything you want when you want. And the best part is Udemy lets you learn it right from the pros themselves. Udemy really has turned the doers into teachers and turned your laptops and mobile devices into classrooms. Now check on the blog for a link to get access to any of Udemy's courses in their catalog for just $15. That's Udemy.com. Now listeners, I have been a book lover my entire life. I love the way they feel in my hand, 
I love the smell of the pages, so I will never stop buying books, but over the last few years, I have become a big fan of digital books, and my favorite app for ebooks is Kindle Unlimited. Kindle Unlimited brings the world's largest bookshelf right to your fingertips. Forget to grab a book you want for a vacation? Not a problem. Want to just read a quick passage in a book that you don't want to buy the whole book? You can do that too. Kindle Unlimited brings the written world to your fingertips for less than the cost of a paperback per month. As always, you can find links to anything mentioned in the show on the blog and in the show notes. And any purchases that you make through our affiliate links are going to kick a portion back to the show to help us keep the lights on around here. All right, John, this brings us to the point in the show that we call the Future Self Skinny Minute, where I will be asking you a series of semi-rapid-fire questions to give the listeners the skinny on you. Are you ready? Yeah, ready. All right. So you have been a business person and entrepreneur your whole life. Do you have one entrepreneur or business person yourself that you have kind of always envied, uh, looked up to, modeled yourself after? Uh, it, it would be, have to be my father and my brother. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're both have been the model that I wanted to sort of, you know, uh, structure my life to be similar to, uh, or emulate in, in many ways. All right. So here's a hypothetical for you. Um, with all of your business acumen that you have, you're forced to move to a new country with just the clothes on your back and $500, no business, no reputation, no clients. What are your first steps? Uh, meet people that will matter, uh, meaning meet people that could you will either you you would like um, personally and who you think could help you uh, potentially in, in whatever endeavor you're trying to do. Um, yeah, so- always meet people that you like individually. So. Uh, I, I, in business, if I am networking or meeting with people and trying to grow my professional network, my professional network is very closely linked to my personal network to, uh, in a lot of respect. I, I, I like to do business with people I like generally. Yeah. Like personally like. Um, I, I, you know, if you meet someone and you get along with them personally and you... And, and, I'm not saying you have to do business with everybody you like, per se. Sometimes you're going to do business with somebody that you don't really know much about or maybe, but, but try not to do business with somebody you don't like because that's really hard yeah. for me. At least I, yeah, I'm, it's the same as don't date somebody I, you don't like. I have a very hard time doing business with somebody I don't like Yeah, personally on a personal level. I have to like you. I have to like, there's gotta be some connection there on a personal level to some extent. Uh, I have to have a feeling about you sure. in order for me to do business with you. So it basically sounds like if we boil it down, your answer is get out there and network. That's right. Meet people. That's right. Um, and that's something we talk about a lot is, you know, there's a, there's a quote that I like is your, your network is your net worth. Um, you know, it's nice to, and to get out there and meet people and have friends. And, and at the end of the day, when someone's recommending someone for a job, they recommend their friends. They recommend people they like. When they're trying to do business with people, they're trying to do business with people they like. So get out there and meet people. Absolutely. Um, so it, It's funny that you say that Exactly that exact thing. Your network is your net worth because that's that's one of the few things that my dad actually said to me when I was like twelve or fourteen. You know, he said that you know a man shouldn't be measured in this life by the amount of money he has in the bank, but it should be he should be measured by the amount of friends he has in this life and the amount of people who 
circle, you know, he has in his circle. Yeah. Um, I like that. Your net worth is really of, of those people who care and love and you have this, you've developed this relationship with in your life and who, that's really your legacy. Your, you know, my money comes and goes, but your, your, your legacy is really what, what matters most. How many lives did you impact? Exactly. And, and I've said that on the podcast before, um, is, is that's really what I want to be judged by. I want to be judged at the end by how many people's lives that I came into touched and made better. That's right. Um, because at the end, that's really all you're going to have. Uh, and that brings me full circle back to Gary Vaynerchuk we were talking about earlier. That's one of the things he says. He's like, I, my goal in life is to have the biggest funeral ever. He's like, I want to be such a positive influence in so many people's lives that so many people show up because they appreciate who I was. Um, and so that, yeah, that, I dig that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What is one book that everyone needs to read? And feel free to give us two or three if you just can't pick one. Because I'm the same way. Um. Every uh, two or three, yeah, I'd have to give you two or three because it's not one book. I, I, it's hard. I'm one of those. I'm, I, I'm one of those people who have like four books on his nightstand at all times. Yeah, four to five books, and that's I. I I'm a. I'm a very. Um, I, I'm. I'm an ardent reader. I read all the time. So yeah, we like um, it on the podcast too. We give book recommendations every week. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's a book called The Devil in Hindsight. Um, and it's it's this particular book is is a really really great book about the financial markets and the turmoils of the financial markets. It gives you a history of uh, what happened back in the uh, tulip financial crisis back in um, the 1600s, 1700s in the Dutch colony, or back in the, in, in in essentially uh, uh, Amsterdam, and uh, back when the first euphoria and the first bubble was for tulips okay um i didn't and, know that yeah and 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 uh and it, it walks you all the way forward to the financial crisis of uh the 1999 2000 time frame uh the devil in hindsight so it's it's a it's a great great book nice um, and we we will link all of those in the show notes and on the blog post so you can check those out there um that's one book uh, that is that is nonfiction. Um, uh, f- for another book that's nonfiction is, is, uh, a, another favorite of mine is, uh, a book by John Krakauer into thin air. It's about the, uh, 1996, 97 Everest disaster. Of, um, okay. Yeah. I was like, I know I recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's, uh, it, it talks about, um, like that whole sort of Everest disaster and the, and the climbing, the climbers that were involved in the Everest disaster. And, but it really highlights the sort of the the human endeavor uh, uh, of, of exploration and 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 sort of setting a setting that 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 ultimate goal for yourself and and going after it even if it means your life because a lot of that's a lot of what a lot of those people did is is they gave up their life to pursue this 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 goal. Yeah, and that's something I've thought a, a good bit about when I was a younger man as well. Is is I remember one particular time when I think I was in college and I was sitting on the bank of a river and you look across the river and all you see is just thick trees for as far as you can see. And, you know, in that moment, I don't even know why I thought about it, but my thought was at one point in time, someone was standing here, there was no roads and they just said, we're going to go over there. That's right. We don't know what's on the other side, but we're just going to go and we're going to keep going. And that, yeah, that pioneering spirit is, uh, is, interesting 
It is. Because I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think I have it, but uh, I have been very few places in my life where someone hasn't been before at this point. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm, I'm completely fascinated by it. So you're going to climb Everest? I'm not going to climb Everest, but I actually I want to make it to the base. That's what that's one of my well, that's one of my dreams. Okay, I, I I have two adventure dreams that I want to get accomplished in my lifetime. Is I want to make it to the base of Mount Everest. Uh, so it's so it's not that lofty. I don't have to. I'm, you know, nobody's losing a limb. Right. You know, right. It's, it, yeah. But I don't have to advent- cut my arm off. I don't have to cut my arm off. You know, I don't have to saw my own arm off or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but uh, making it to the base of Mount Everest is one of my dreams, and the other one of my dreams is is walking the um, 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 the Compostale Trail. Um, essentially, the the that's the um, the trail in Spain that goes from Spain to to France um, that you walk the whole the whole way the whole the whole way. How far is it? Um, I think it's about like three four hundred miles. Good hike. Like that. The walk. Uh, it's called the walk. It was based on. Um, um, it's the it's the El Camino Trail. Okay, that's what it's it's better. It's it's got a couple of different names: El Camino Trail, um, the the Trail of El Camino de Compostale. So that's on the list. That's on the list. When's it happening? I I think it's happening. Hopefully, when my son grows big enough to where he can come with me. Nice. Yeah. So so yeah. at least not for another ten to fifteen years. Sure. My I think my my well not I think my big one. Uh, that I've had on my list for a number of years is I'd like to uh, scale Kilimanjaro. Okay. And, well, it's one of those things that you, you know, that every man can do without, you know, too much concern. Yeah. Obviously, everything carries a risk with it. But it's something that uh, I've seen other people do. I'm like, eh, if he can do it, I can do it. Right, right. Um, and, you know, but it's also, you know, an incredibly tall yeah. mountain as well. Yeah, yeah. So, but that yeah. that's, that's something I've always wanted to do. Oh, and cool. I've always kind of wanted to do the Appalachian Trail. I grew up in I like the Appalachian North Trail. Carolina. Carolina. The El Camino Trail is similar to the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. Except it's in Europe. It's a and hell of a walk. It's a hell of a walk and you get to stay at European B&Bs as opposed to Appalachian. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Whatever they do up there. <laughs> Whatever they do there. All right. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? I know it's a tough one. <clears throat> the best piece of advice is... Um, um, you, 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 um, dreams, dreams take a lot of work. You have to work, you have to work your dreams, um, not the other way around. You, have, you can't let your dreams work you. Um, it's something that my, my dad said and my, my brother have said. So you, 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 you have to, you have to figure out a way. It's okay to have dreams, but you have to work, work the hell out of your dreams in order to get there. Yeah, um, it's it's great to have dreams. It's fantastic to have dreams. In fact, that's what life is made of, of a series of dreams. Um, but 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 dreams don't pay the bills. You, you know. <laughs> True. And and dreams don't 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 drive your ass to work. So uh, you have to every single day work your dreams in order to make them to get there. In order, in order to get them to get them to be a reality. Yeah, that's good. I always like to ask this question. It's not always the easiest one to ask, but I think it's very telling. What is your biggest professional disappointment? Probably that I didn't I didn't become an entrepreneur earlier in my life. That I didn't just um, suck it up and uh, launch a business in my twenties as opposed to in my thirties. What was holding you back? Uh, probably knowledge and fear. Yeah, fear is mine. Fear is the biggest thing. Yeah, 
fear, I would say fear is the number one is what was holding me back at yeah, the time. Definitely me too. I remember looking around at other people who were launching businesses while I was in college with them and thinking, uh, you know, almost not, I didn't even give them the benefit of the doubt. I was like, well, that's silly. That's not going to work. And, you know, those guys, I'm still friends with some of those guys and they're doing incredibly well. Um, and a, a number of them aren't even in the business they were in that they were launching in college, but they learned so much from those businesses because they were willing to start launching. Of course, them. because because it's it's not if it did or did not work. That's inconsequential. <laughs> it's okay if it didn't work. It, it's the it's the process of you actually trying to do it is is what makes it so fantastic. Boom. And that's what we didn't know. That's yeah. what I didn't know when I was twenty. Same thing. You know, same thing as as you and I looked at people that are in when I was in my early twenties. I was like, ah, oh, they're fucking nuts. They're trying to do this. How are they going to pay their bills? How are they going to pay their apartment bill? Or how are they going to do this? And what's the guarantee that that's going to work? There is no guarantee that it's going to work. <laughs> and you know what? Some of it didn't work. And it's okay. But that's what I didn't accept and didn't know when I was in my 20s. Same thing. Absolutely. Uh, what did 10-year-old John think he'd be doing right now? 10-year-old John? Yeah. God, 10-year-old John thought I'd be a priest right now. That's an easy really? answer. Really? Oh, yeah. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. 10-year-old John thought I'd be a priest. Was that a big part of the culture? I, I went to Catholic schools. I grew uh, up Catholic, my, so... Yeah, I went to Catholic schools. But I don't think life. I ever had that moment, um, but... No, at 10-year-old, ten year, ten I thought I'd be a priest, or I thought I'd be like a some kind of a spiritual advisor of some sort, you know? Nice. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's say you have one piece of advice that you can give that 10-year-old John right now. What do you tell him? Uh, be adventurous and just just go for go for what your gut tells you, no matter what the other side of your gut is telling you. <laughs> I love it, you know, because you're always going to have the other side of your gut telling you. Oh, you You've you, been you, listening to it. the future careful, self. Careful, careful, yeah, careful. yeah. Just just throw it, throw throw fear to the wind and just go for it. What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst you that know? could happen? Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, I I'm a big music fan, so I like to ask uh, people when I'm in the zone and I'm getting stuff done. I listen to music, and I got a couple albums I turn to, and I'm always interested in hearing if anyone else does that, and if so, what do you turn to when you're trying to get stuff done? Um, I have classical playing usually. I have opera playing in my office sometimes, just just to kind of as background music, not really. I don't really know enough about classical music or opera music. I just like the sound of it. It yeah. really kind of gets me relaxed without having to think about things. Um, when I'm in like the zone, meaning like if I'm running or something or trying to like motivate, um, I, I play all kinds of music. I mean, I and I'm I'm a Pearl Jam generation, so oh, me too. You know, I me too. You know, I, I'm I'm all about I'm all about grunge and early stage grunge. Anything yeah. from Pearl Jam to Alice in Chain to I mean you know I that's 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 you know my wife always makes fun of me with that you know because I can always recite all these. Old oh yeah, songs. I can sing them all. So and I'm I'm still a little sour about Pearl Jam. I was uh, gonna see them for the first time ever. Uh, back in April, and the show, oh, really? got, the show got canceled. Ah. Political nonsense. Ah. Um, so I'm a little, still a little salty about that. I, I've seen him. I've seen him three times, oh. and I've even played a little hacky sack with Eddie Vedder. Really? Yeah. By Look completely by chance. Sure. Completely by chance. But uh, still, I, I went to a, a, a early '90s. I'm dating myself. Early '90s Lollapalooza. Nice. I went um, to '97. Yeah. Pearl Jam wasn't doing it anymore. Uh, this was '90. 392 so Pearl, you know, Pearl Jam was within their prime yeah. at the time and um, we, you know I, I, after I 
had smoked a little something. Uh, mm-hmm. I was wandering around the Lollapalooza fairgrounds, and I happened to come across this guy who was like just playing hacky sack. Yeah, and I was like, "Hey, dude, what's going on?" He's like, "Hey, man, what's going on?" And uh, and you know, we're just like talking, and then he like kind of shot the hacky sack back and forth a little bit, and and then I went back to this friend of mine came and met me up and gave me a beer, and he's like, "Hey, did you know who that was?" I was like, no, who is that? He's like, oh, dude, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's Eddie Vedder. That's, that's the guy. That's the guy from Pearl Jam. <laughs> uh, and at the time, I was like, oh, Pearl Jam. You mean the band that were just perform- performing today? He's yeah. like, yeah, dude, that's the guy. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And that's funny that you say that because that was always kind of the folk legend that we heard when I was in high school was that Eddie Vedder would be out in the crowd like hanging out with people he and was. buying them beers yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, one of the albums I bought when I was in high school they uh on one of the back of the album covers it says it gives some kind of shout out about that like i guess he'd bought some kids some beers in raleigh yeah uh and yeah. i guess the cops had given the kids a hard time yeah and they actually wrote something about it on the back of the album so that's yeah. really cool yeah yeah speaking of raleigh that's my other famous band experience is is uh is um uh i met uh this the lead singer for um god what is that band called um um, I forget it. What do they out. sing? Come on! No, I don't want to cut it out. Mother. Oh my God! Which? Um, oh wait, is it? Is uh, what the hell? It's is a name heavy metal. Yeah, like, uh, like mother, mother. Yeah, don't you want to be? Yeah, what mind? band is that? Yeah, I feel like we we sound like I don't know what band it is. Um, it's with a Z. It's with a Z. Oh my God, my wife would know. Um, uh, Danzig. Danzig. She just texted it to me. Danzig. Danzig. <laughs> We're not cutting any of this. Danzig. <laughs> I was like, my wife would know. I look at my phone. Oh my it's like, God, Danzig. Danzig. So I went to a concert. I went to a Danzig concert in Greensboro, North Carolina, in like '94. '94 <laughs> must have been '93, '94, and. And then after, and it was like at some small music hall of some sort. And I got to, uh, at the, after the concert, this friend of mine knew like the drummer of Danzig. Yeah. And we got to go on the bus at, at, and nice. we were sitting around drinking, drinking. That's so I, cool. I think drinking, that was my first experience. I think drinking scotch with, with uh, the lead singer of Danzig. He's like, hey dude, do you drink, do you drink scotch? I was like, no. Sure. I, I, but I will. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I was drink. I was just drinking Schlitz at the time. So. <laughs> Schlitz? Like a, that's fantastic. Yeah. John, I can not tell you how much I appreciate you being here. I had a blast, man. It was really good. But before we go, where can the listeners find you? Web, social media? Yeah, so they can find me at, uh, they can find me at, uh, obviously, my email, john at macvp.com, john at m-a-c-c-v-p.com. Um, my, uh, 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 my Twitter handle is Business Anarchy. Um, and uh, the website is macvp.com, m-a-c-c-v-p.com. Um, Perfect. That's that's, right. that's where they can find me. Well, we will link all of that in the blog and the show notes as well. So check it out there. John, it was such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you much. 
Listeners, I hope you got as much value out of today's episode as I did. John is a true inspiration. He is a shining example of everything that we're about here at the Future Self Podcast. He knew what he wanted, and he knew the only way there was by grinding it out every day. When life took a left turn, instead of being stubborn, he adjusted and made the best of his situation. You will be hard-pressed to find a better mentor for taking your future self seriously and making the tough decisions every day to get from where you are to where you want to be. We just talked about this on the show today, listeners. Your network truly is your net worth. And if you're looking to add some zeros to that net worth, then head on over to robertingles.com and grab your free copy of my Networking Knockout Punches Cheat Sheet. It's a handy, quick reference guide to help you start building a world-class network and adding some zeros to your net worth in no time. That's robertingles.com. Listeners, your time is your most valuable asset, so I want to say a sincere thank you for taking some of that time out of your busy schedule and spending it with me. Until next week, get out there and get after it. You've been listening to the Future Self Podcast. Thanks for listening. Now, get out there and give your future self something to cheer about.